teach you go to school. And here's your name. What do you think of what's going on right now, mate? These evil little invisible parasites. Satan worshipping Freemason moron. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not run by factions. Get the fuck out of camera. There are much more powerful international forces in play. Is this pig guy? Is this what pig guy is? I don't fucking know what's happening. Please get outside and look at the moon quickly. It's been crazy, guys, but guess what? It's how it is, mate. Mate, because I want to do it slowly. Well, I ain't spending any time on it. Welcome to the Conditional Release Program, and this week we have a very special guest, Yaakov Aron, who will give us a unique perspective on what the fuck is happening in the Middle East. From what I've seen, there is absolutely no truth, and there's no consensus, which has thrown me. Cookers always agree with each other because they get their information from the same source. Usually, I don't know, Bob Bursa. But it's cooker against cooker. It's like, it's bizarre. Look, even Nazis and cookers aren't agreeing. That's just bizarre. They're usually holding hands in the field. So this time it's really vague. And I mean, I'm turning to Yaakov to get an idea of what the fuck is going on. Because Yaakov knows how I like things delivered, which is a slightly cooker take, but also a lot of reality as well, which will be nice. So now due to the fairly intense nature of the subject matter, it is not exactly a great time to do a beer plug, but I'm going to do one anyway, and for a good reason. We have a sense of urgency because for the month of October, our friends at CB Co. are doing a 10% off coupon. If you put CRP10 into the checkout, you will get 10% off, which brings their ridiculously good prices down even further to what is a fairly unbelievable rate. For a case of very decent West Coast IPA, it's like 73 bucks delivered. That's crazy. Uh, their Hazy Nipa comes in at like 82 bucks delivered, which is also mental. The code only works for this month, so get in before the end of October. If you get in now, well, I mean, you've got about 10 days. So don't fuck around. Buy some beer. It's delicious. It's cheap. So without further ado or advertising or blustering through fucking plugs, let's get stuck into one of the more divisive topics in recent history, which is driving me personally fucking insane and making me very thankful that I'm not in the area being absolutely subjugated. Um, But look, we're also not here to push you one way or another. So even though we're probably going to be using a bit of that kind of language, we are just here to throw some perspective in the situation that may not be found in the sort of usual 250 word Guardian pieces you're getting online and um, throw some cooker shit in there as well. You know, we're going to talk about some cooker shit too, because that's fun-ish. Um, anyway, welcome, Yaakov. I am done dribbling. It is a pleasure to have you here. All right. It's nice to be on. Long-time listener of the podcast. Good friend of the show. Yes, absolutely. Well, we're better to begin with who I am and where I'm coming from. Yeah, yeah. Fill us in, man. Fill us in. So, I am a Jewish activist. I've written, studied, and visited Israel and Palestine for a very long time. Yep. I was born into a family that was very intimately connected to the conflict. Mm-hmm. It was not a choice for me to become interested or to you know, become connected to the conflict. I was born into it. I'm a dual Australian and Israeli citizen. And I have family living in Israel and family serving in the IDF uh, now and in the past. That's concerning. Yeah. Yeah, that sucks. So firstly... I want to emphasize that my story is not one of a normal Jewish upbringing. This is in line with the theme of this show, and I really cannot emphasize this enough, a cooked and red-pilled Jewish upbringing. (laughs) The views that I was raised with are not representative of the Israeli mainstream, of Australian Jews, or of the diaspora around the world. I wanted to introduce myself to listeners of the program by telling them who I am and where I've come from, and there is no way for me to tell a story of my own subjective personal experience without avoiding bias 
or by aiming for a so-called balanced perspective. Yeah, we're not here for that, though. We're here for something interesting. You know, We, we get- are here for the low-hanging fruit. <laughs> and if we can afford it, sprinkle in a little bit of serious analysis when we yeah. can. Yeah, totally agree. Now, I was raised as an ultra-Orthodox Jew in Bondi in Sydney. What this meant was six-plus hours uh, every day of studying the Torah and a couple hours of praying. Oh, Jesus. I attended <laughs> extra classes before school during lunch, after school, and continued studying at home on weekdays. Uh, There were more classes on Saturday and Sunday. There were daily visits to the synagogue. And I remember thinking almost every morning on the way to school, you know, is Messiah going to come before the end of the school day or a little bit after? That's fucked. Uh, This is a very common experience for kids in my school. We we grew up with a certain messianic uh, zealotry uh, which is not very imaginable to the average everyday Australian. No. Now, the ultra-Orthodox community is not mainstream within Judaism. Yep. And the views that I grew up with, which I will delve into, are also not mainstream even within the ultra-Orthodox community. Oh, wow. I certainly wouldn't say that they're fringe. They're kind of yeah, somewhere in kind. between. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, yeah. And the reason that this is concerning is when you put it into the context of 13% of Israel's population is ultra-Orthodox Jews yeah, okay. at this moment. Yep. And every time there is a census, that number grows because they have massive birth rates. Uh, These guys yeah. breed like rabbits. <laughs> That's what the Nazis keep telling us. <laughs> Sorry, that, is that inappropriate? I don't know. <laughs> Great replacement's not funny, I suppose. Listen, um, <laughs> a lot of uh, sightings of ultra-Orthodox Jews around Israel ha- have, you know, occurred coming in and out of sex shops through oh, wow. sneaky little back doors. Um, sneaky little back doors. Ooh, but um, sh- <laughs> I mean, they, they, they sneak in and out. But uh, Israel, they recently formed a wartime cabinet. Mm-hmm. But before then, their peacetime cabinet was... The 37th government coalition consisted mm-hmm. of another 37 members of parliament from six different parties. Wow. Now, Likud, which is Bibi Netanyahu's party, is the most moderate. Really? Yeah, relatively speaking, the most oh, wow. moderate of the six parties. Okay. And they flirt with religious fundamentalism and Orthodox Judaism, but are, I mean, essentially a secular party in theory. Um, the other five parties, on the other hand, that formed the coalition... They range from orthodox to ultra-orthodox, and all five of those are ultra-nationalistic and far-right. Okay, so this is like the uh, this is the coalition that's in government forming a majority, which then sort of legislates together. I'm guessing there's some sort of opposition that isn't completely cooked, right? Or is this the entire parliament that we're talking about? There is like an equivalent of the Israeli Greens, okay, yeah, um, which is still fundamentally a Zionist party. Yeah, okay. Um, I guess you can't so, really get up if you don't. Yeah. So so if you're a Palestinian or someone who believes that um, Israel is a settler colonial state, you know, their Greens equivalent, which is called Meretz, would still fundamentally be unapologetic for the settler colonialism. Okay. Yeah. But like I say, it'd be unelectable otherwise. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's, there's another party, which is the Arab Joint List, which has been inconceivably successful. I mean, unimaginably so compared to the success or lack thereof of their predecessors. Okay. They have one Jewish member in parliament. Okay. Uh, the rest are Arabs, I think. Oh, wow. I think there's, I couldn't tell you the exact number of members, several. That's fair, yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, my personal opinion is that when you talk of the what the media calls the Israeli left, you're really talking about the uh, Israeli less far right. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the Overton window is um, in a spot. And it's shifting further right every election. Yeah, well, it's going to be fucked after this. Yeah, and... 
you know, Israel's had five elections in the last four years, which is fucking cooked. These guys are tired of voting. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's stuck in deadlock where yeah. no party can really form a substantial coalition majority. Yeah. So they keep on returning to the polls and somehow Bibi Netanyahu has, you know, barely scraped by with a coalition that quickly falls apart in four out of five of those elections. Yep. Um, and the coalitions are increasingly made up of further and further right-wing parties. Yeah, which he has to keep happy. Which he has to keep happy. And yeah. those parties are mostly orthodox, ultra-orthodox, ultra-nationalistic, and far-right. Yep. Uh, yep. With this most recent election, Likud is the only one that is not an orthodox Jewish party, mm-hmm. um, and the other five are. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now, this level of like messianic zealotry and religious fundamentalism is really unthinkable to most Australians. Yeah, we wouldn't. Uh, yeah. Ironically, I've found that Muslims who've grown up around the religious hub of Halden Street in Lakemba can relate quite a bit. Yeah, but okay. Outside of that, I'm sorry, your mate who says he grew up as a religious Christian because he attended Sunday school has no <laughs> fucking idea. <laughs> yeah, fair call. Now, growing up, I had eight classmates. Uh, they were all boys. Mm-hmm. It was an ultra-Orthodox school. We spoke in what linguists call the Shivish dialect of English, which is a mishmash of English, Yiddish, Hebrew, and Aramaic. It would be unintelligible to the everyday Australian. Uh, we had our own board games, our own music, our own books, our own movies. It was world unto its own and leaving that world or looking for entertainment or leisure outside of that world was strictly forbidden. Um, a close friend of mine came up with a very funny analogy uh, and described it as it's like being Harry Potter and Diagon Alley. You believe in miracles and divine providence occurring daily in front of your own eyes in a way that is quite comparable to believing in magic mm-hmm. your life exists within the very tiny parameters of several alleyways and streets you run laps from home to school to synagogue uh to family homes of a couple different classmates you're tight with and then you yeah. come back home yeah um now we see the muggles they're out there in bondi they like to go to the beach they like to go shopping mm-hmm. and they're easily identifiable because they are clean shaven and they dress mm-hmm. according to modern fashion standards yep we on the other hand had beards we wore long strange black robes and we stuck to ourselves yeah we did not mix with the muggles <laughs> yeah there was one exception for when we spoke to muggles. Every Friday afternoon, several kids and I would accompany a rabbi and we would venture down to Hall Street in Bondi Beach. We would approach strangers, ask them if they were Jewish, and if they answered yes, we would ask them to put on tefillin, which are these leather arm straps that Jews use when they're praying. Okay. Uh, we'd also give our candlesticks that they can conduct certain rituals for Shabbat. Now, generally, Jews avoid evangelism and proselytizing. Yeah, okay. We did not. We were big on this. Yeah, okay. And although we did not attempt to convert Jews, rather we tried to make those who already are Jewish become more religious. Yeah. Now, this gave me a lot of insight as well into the way that cookers uh, handle their beliefs. I mean, you cannot know someone who is into QAnon without them blasting it down your throat every oh, totally. second. Like, yeah, it's they a whole, need to let yeah. you know that they it's, are into QAnon, they they aren't vaccinated, they just can't shut their fucking mouths. No, no. It's a vegan trope, but vegans don't really 
do that, whereas cookies definitely, absolutely do. But a lot of people forget that this actually creates a, how do I say this, a mental condition where you are constantly having your own opinions kind of put into this so-called marketplace of ideas and you think they're going to be tested. Yeah, okay. In reality, they just fucking double down. It just backfires. Yeah. Like the people who are arguing against them are so-called the real real brainwashed ones. Yep. And you are the only one who knows the truth. Yep. And the fact that they are, you know, in their eyes, deliberately ignoring you is only further proof of how true the red pill you've taken is. Exactly. It's the red pill matrix bullshit. Um, you know, it really is. Yeah. In psychology, they call this the backfire effect. Okay, that's interesting. Now, when it came to Israel, uh, we were uncompromisingly supportive of all of its activities. Yep. Uh, during Israel's 2005 evacuation of settlers from Gaza, Uh, I was 10 years old, and it was the first time that I remember becoming politically active. A friend from school pilled me on the subject and invited me to Sydney-based protests and disseminated stickers and pamphlets with the phrase, Jews do not expel Jews on them. Yeah, so you wanted to keep the settlements because that was, uh, you know, they were reasonable to be there, blah, 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 sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty extreme. It's pretty extreme, and, you know, a lot of people forget that Gaza used to have settlements yep. and Israel withdrew them. I do not believe that this was the end of the military occupation, no. but it certainly did make it uh, a little more, less textbook of a case. Yep, yep. Now, my friends and I, we returned to Hall Street to pass out these pamphlets and stickers to whichever strangers were willing to listen to our bullshit. <laughs> and you would have been a kid. Yeah. I remember joking at the time about the assassinations of Yitzhak Rabin and the coming assassination of then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon. Uh, for their concessions of land to the Palestinians, which, you know, according to our understanding from, you know, the religious principles we were taught is just a big fat no-no. Yeah, okay. So Yitzhak Rabin was the um, the prime minister in charge at the time when they withdrew from the, settler, uh, from the settlements in Gaza? So Ariel Sharon was the one who withdrew from Gaza. Yeah. Um, he was not assassinated. Yitzhak Rabin was the one who signed the Oslo Accords and agreed to create the Palestinian Authority. Okay. And he actually was assassinated. Yes. Uh, and that was a joke to us. Um, yeah, wow. Because well, we will talk about that later, but um, but it's interesting to get an idea of what, like who Yitzhak Rabin was and why he was assassinated because that's one of the things I've, I've always known the reason why was basically he was sympathetic to Palestinians and did something that pissed yeah. them off. Yeah, and we will get to that later on in the podcast. Yeah. Now, uh, Bibi Netanyahu, he met with the head rabbi of my sect a number of times, the, the rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who's simply colloquially known as the Rebbe. Easier to pronounce. Yeah. Now, the Rebbe passed away in 1994, and Bibi Netanyahu has gone on to quote the teachings of the Rebbe to him several times, including one time in a 2011 speech on the floor of the UN General Assembly. Oh, wow. And he said that the Rebbe taught him, quote, you'll be serving in a house of many lies, as in the UN General Assembly, Yeah. remember that the light of a single candle can be seen far and wide in the darkest of places. Wow, okay. That's how you make friends. Yeah. Well, Bibi, when he quoted this, he did preempt it with, I hope none of you are offended, which, of course, not responsible for any offense after that. No offense, (laughs) but I'm not racist, but classic disclaimers with absolutely no flaws Completely absolved. Yeah. Easy. Problem Uh, solved. There's also various one-minute clips from their meetings on YouTube, which can easily be found. Uh, In one meeting in 1990, Bibi and the Rebbe greet each other with wishes of blessings and success. Uh, Bibi asks for advice, quote, in all areas 
personal and political. The Rebbe responds, quote, that many things have progressed since the last time that they have met, but that the Messiah has not yet come. So you, Bibi, must hasten the coming of the Messiah. And Bibi insists and stutters and stumbles, oh, we're doing, we're doing what we can. And the Rebbe cuts him off. He says, apparently it's not enough since many hours have passed today already and the Messiah is still not here. Okay, that's cooked. But there are still hours left for today. Oh, good. That's the good news. So try still for today. Okay, cool. So the rapture is still, you know, look, it's 4 p.m. We've still got plenty of time. Plenty of time. And then the Rebbe promptly bids him farewell with blessings of good tidings and success. Mm -hmm. Success is not a good thing, though. I don't want your success. The success, success means annexing the West Bank and Gaza. <laughs> of course. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. The Rebbe's messianic f- uh, fervor was my fervor, and the fervor that so many that I grew up with felt and knew so well. Yeah. Yeah. My personal hunch is that Bibi was, you know, performing something vain and political for his voters. Yeah. But regardless, these are the voters which, as time passes, he's becoming increasingly attached to every passing election. Yeah. Yeah, symbiotic relationship. And also, you know, they seem easy to pander to, to be honest. You know, they seem very impressionable in that regard. Yes. Mm. These settlers only want one thing, and it's disgusting, to quote the name. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) The complete annexation of Palestine. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. And, um, you know, like uh, as lovely Avi Yemeni, who we'll discuss over time, said uh, to, you know, to finish the job. Yeah. I mean, that's so fucking sociopathic. But he's an asshole, you know. Not a real journalist. No, no, he's not. Even though he's got a really nice press jacket that he's wearing oh. over there. Oh, it's great. Some eBay I sold it to him, I'm sure. For the listeners, Avi Yemeni is now at least claiming to do some reporting, for whatever that's worth, from the yeah. ground in Israel. Now, Israel is just completely stuck in this state of political deadlock. Bibi's power it hangs on by a thread, and he's doing whatever he can to hang on. And it just feels like almost every month for several years now, he faces some do-or-die deadline in his prolonged criminal trial for charges of corruption. Yeah. And in every election, he shifts further and further right. Yeah, that's actually one of the theories is on Telegram. I was sort of browsing things this afternoon just to see what it sort of stood out. And people were saying basically that there's this massive conspiracy theory, which you might sort of discuss later on, that they let the recent attacks happen to create this situation because if he can create some kind of dramatic situation, whether it be war or some kind of dramatic outcome or result, then he will further delay any kind of criminal issues. And uh, and the entire thing is basically to, you know, essentially save his own skin, um, which is very cynical, but also kind of disjointed from reality. It's like, oh, hey, Hamas, Boys, man, fucking my lawyer said that shit's happening. Hoy, could you just like launch a massive coordinated attack on my country? That would be a fucking massive solid. Mm. Thanks, guys. Oh, yeah, don't worry. Habibi, I got your back, bro. Like, no. What? No. Yeah. Anyway, but people are idiots. So, like, I mean, obviously what people say on Telegram is usually a good indication of what is um, incredibly stupid and wrong. Mm. Yes. Traditional political wisdom shows that uh, Bibi's odds of surviving this are very slim. Yeah, okay. But That's interesting. to give him credit, uh, one of Bibi's greatest skills is his ability to survive when the odds are stacked against him. Yeah, yeah. So he is a very wily politician and, to his credit, a very competent statesman. I mean, not that yeah. I agree with him, but he's good at achieving his agenda. Yeah, he's been knocking around the nest for a million years, so, you know. And although I think that any allegations that he deliberately let this happen to 
cement his uh, his power and authority. Those those conspiracies are bogus. Yeah, they're insane. Um, he is a master of what Boris Johnson calls, you know, place the dead cat on the table trick, which is whenever you're stuck in a political scandal and everyone's talking about it, you just you dump the dead cat on the table and you say, oh my God, have you seen this dead cat? And suddenly everyone's talking about the dead cat. They might be asking, uh, where did Bibi or Boris pull the dead cat out of? Are they responsible for the dead cat? But now people are talking about the dead cat instead of you. You know, yeah. this candle that came before it. Yeah, that is a very fucked up thing. It's like Steve Bannon's, you know, filling the zone with shit. It's one of those things when you hear it and you think, oh, fuck you. That happened. I've felt fallen for that. Fuck you. Oh, man. Ah, oh, fuck. I'm so easily played, which I <laughs> find very frustrating. I don't like it when it's summed up so succinctly. Day cat. Yeah, I'm going to remember that. That's a very interesting little tidbit. Now, it's impossible for an Israeli party to achieve a majority on its own, which is exactly why uh, Bibi's power is running so thin yeah rather they rely on a mixture of parties that are tenuously connected forming a coalition yeah and israel's current minister of national security is an orthodox settler named itamar ben gvir and ben gvir's party name is called otma yudid which is the hebrew words for jewish power oh that sounds a bit nazi it's a bit nuts nasty yes it's yeah probably probably shouldn't say it sounds nazi but jewish power does sound just you know a bit bad. You could very comfortably describe him as a fundamentalist and racial supremacist. That sounds bad. It's pretty bad. Yeah. The party was born from the ashes of another party named Kach, which is formally designated a terrorist organization by Israel and by the US. What? Yeah. Somehow this guy is still the minister for national security. The fuck? And the organizational structure of the Kach party lives on with some of its former members, including Ben Gvir himself. They exist as a vanguard within the current Otsma Yehudi party. Wow. Okay. That's cooked. It's, he's a proper cooker. That's now, so, this, yeah. Wow. Anyway. To this day, Ben Gvir remains proud and unapologetic for his political activities within the Kach party, which were so extreme that the IDF themselves exempted him from conscription and refused to enlist him, oh, wow. even though he was keen. Interesting. I actually got a small anecdote, very brief. But I was in Thailand with my ex-wife and we were in the line for a nightclub with two guys from Israel. Lots of Israelis in um in, uh, in Thailand, I actually made friends with a few of them. They call it the Hummus Trail. Really? Yeah. I love they all, it. Uh, they all follow us in uh, trail of tourist hotspots oh there you go they graduate from the army okay because yeah there was a guy he died tragically in a drink driving accident i believe or maybe just driving accident shit i don't want to um curse his name on that one but i met heaps of awesome israelis over there i really actually enjoyed that aspect of things in this line there was this guy this really big guy and this really weedy nerdy little guy and this big guy was there with my ex-wife who was well my wife at the time and she's french and super left-wing and he's going on about how he crushes palestinians and fuck them and blah 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 and she's not loving this in any way, shape, or form. And the little guy is great. He's just like, okay, he's like a private or whatever. I'm like a, you know, captain or whatever. I make sure all this shit he's talking about doesn't happen because he's an idiot and he's never going to be in any position of power because he's a moron. They put me there <laughs> to make sure this fuckwit doesn't do all the crap he's spouting right now. And we just sort of went, oh, thank God for that. And he was just like, he's a moron. And he sort of like, you know, went, oh, okay. Because he's outranked. You know, like his little mate was just like, I own you, bitch. And he's like, oh, damn it. But yeah, it's like, it's, it is definitely interesting to see, like, you know, despite all the things that happen, the atrocities that happen, and all like the people like Avi Yemeni who gloat about shooting Palestinian children, there is a line. And, um, and the people in the higher ups are not interested in fucking bloodthirsty, insane people. You might be bloodthirsty and insane, but you've got to hide it. 
because they will, yeah, they'll they'll basically go, oh, you're that. Let's not. I mean, the issue is that these guys are becoming uh, increasingly numerous in the RDF mm-hmm. and About. increasingly without restraint by their mm-hmm. superiors. Yeah, that is very concerning. This was a long time ago. I mean, a good example of this is in 2016, there was a Palestinian in he- Hebron called Abdel Fattah al-Sharif yep. who stabbed an Israeli soldier and was subsequently shot and neutralized. Yeah. Yeah. So as he lay motionless on the floor, completely neutralized again, yep. he was shot in the head huh. uh, by Elora Azaria, who was an IDF soldier. Okay. That's and, you know, they ensured that he he was dead for good. Now, first Israel denied that it happened. Yep. And then footage was released confirming yeah. that it had happened. Uh, very, very graphic footage. Yeah, that'd be horrible. And Elora Azaria was part of a very, very public trial. Oh, wow, okay. Which did not happen quickly. I mean, the Mm. Israeli judicial system was very reluctant to press charges. Of course. They only did so after international outrage really pushed them into a corner. Yeah, the Yanks probably said, mate, can't. Got it. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. he was found guilty, which I believe is an anomaly. Yeah. Um, and he was given 18 months of imprisonment for- Oh, shit, what for was, murder. Well, it was deemed manslaughter. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And this, I think, was very much a performative sentence given yep. so that the international community would get off Israel's backs. Yep. Um, the right wing rioted in response to the, this, uh, oh, this wow. conviction. Yeah, okay. And it really turned the- civil discourse inside Israel upside down. Interesting. So these guys, they are running increasingly rampant within the IDF. There was another soldier who in 2018, there was the Palestinian March of Return in Gaza, where they would every Friday afternoon gather near the wall and, you know, have a gathering. Yeah. And there were routinely soldiers who would snipe at them even though they were unarmed, was a civilian gathering. Oh, wow. Um, And there was one soldier who was quoted as saying, today I took 40 kneecaps. Wow. To a journalist. That's not something you should be proud of, champ. Um, So this is just completely, or rather I should say, increasingly unchecked uh, ultra-nationalism within the IDF's own ranks, which yeah. they're not holding their own to account. Yeah, okay, yeah. So the guy in the uh, in the nightclub line was more of an anomaly than anything else. Well, I think that they used to be more, uh, I don't know, maybe it's that technology has gotten better in filming what IDF soldiers are doing. Yeah, okay. Or maybe it's that... Uh, they are getting increasingly worse, which is what I'm leaning towards. Yeah, okay. But suddenly Israel's always had this issue of not properly regulating the extremists within its own force. Yep. Now, yes, Ben Gvir was one of the very few who was refused service. Because they, they did knew not he was just bad. He was too cooked. Yeah. Now, yeah. the same cannot be said for the man that Ben Gvir has a photo of in his own uh, office behind his desk. Okay. And someone who he has described as a hero, someone who he's made pilgrimages to the grave of okay. with his family. Yep. Ben Gvir had a photo of terrorist Baruch Goldstein behind his desk for decades. Okay. And he spoke very proudly of it. Cool. Baruch Goldstein was an ultra-Orthodox settler who served in the IDF, okay. was known to be an extremist within the IDF, yep. and went on to commit the massacre of the Cave of the Patriarchs in Hebron during Ramadan in 1994. He killed 30 Muslim worshippers and oh, injured wow. 125 more in a planned, unprovoked attack Oof. on his Torah mosque 
during worship time in Ramadan. Fuck that. And he went until his automatic rifle, which was IDF issue, he went until the worshippers beat him to death. Yeah, yeah, okay. It was a suicide mission. It was a suicide mission. Yeah. And Ben Kvir has his photo up on the wall. That's fucked in the head. Now, this guy was in the IDF. He was not turned back. And these guys are, it's at least becoming apparent to the media and international community that these guys are in large number. Yeah, they or exist. I should at least say yeah. they're in larger number than anyone should be comfortable within yeah, the IDF. Not insignificant number sort of thing. Um, yes. And that, that's totally fair enough. I mean, were you saying this guy, um, Ben Gavir, he was the Minister of Defence or something? Minister for National Security. Minister for National Security. That seems... Yeah. Anyway, I'll let listeners draw their own conclusions on whether that's a good thing or and not. Bibi Netanyahu has promised him as a deal for joining his coalition. He's having a lot of trouble getting this motion passed. Okay. But he did promise him that he would give him his own paramilitary wing to exercise complete control over. Yeah, okay. And this is a man who couldn't even serve within the IDF. Yeah. Who's a member of an organization, a party that Israel itself has deemed the terrorist group. Yeah. Yeah. And like, look, I will give like a bit of a disclaimer as, you know, a bit of a sort of both sidesy radical centrist sort of move that I'm sure if we did a deeper dive into Hamas and their organizational structure, we'd find all sorts of crazy shit with lots of death to Israel and lots of things, blah, blah, blah. But the thing with Hamas is that they are basically universally condemned. I mean, look, you know, uh, Chris Brune, if he sees me in the street, will probably make me condemn Hamas just because it's a Sunday and he feels like it. Uh, and that's fine. And I'm happy to do that. But no one's really doing the same sort of thing with Israel because it's not deemed as a terrorist state. And we do hold them to a higher account that we do expect them to follow international rules, partially because they've got really big guns and I believe they have nukes. So, yeah, I mean, like, you know, anyone who's thinking there's a double standard being applied here, maybe you're right, but maybe there's reasons for that. And I think there's about a thousand of them, to be honest. But I just want to put that sort of idea to bed and anyone who might be thinking, well, what about the fucking other guys? I'm like, well, yeah, but do they have multi-billion dollar military? Do they have nuclear warheads? Do they have the backing of the West? Are they meant to be in accordance with these laws? And are they deemed a fucking terrorist state? I mean, no, 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 yes, no, no, you know. So I just want to, yeah, chuck that little bit of disclaimer in there, but I think it makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And to me, the point that you made that really sticks out above the rest is Australia does not fund Hamas. We do fund Israel. Yeah. The um, United States, they fund Israel. Yeah. So they need to ask, is their money going to a moral cause or is it not? Yeah. It's not a question yeah. we need to ask with Hamas. No, exactly. And we don't ask it and it's a very different thing. So just wanted to put that sort of any double standard ideas in people's heads to bed because we are trying to make sure that we do a very fair sort of coverage on this one. And we don't just do the let's shit on one side sort of hyperpartisan thing. But at the same time, you know, it's pretty bad. <laughs> and to follow up on that, uh, Israel is the only party uh, within this conflict that has a state. Palestinians do not. So yeah. you would expect them to be much more centralized and uniform in how they regulate themselves, how they control their own military forces. It's not something you can say for uh Palestinians, yeah, because there is no real central body controlling them. Yeah, and there's a resistance as well. You know, the the standard of living and the general sense of freedom, which we'll talk about later, is is wildly different. So yeah, there's a lot of sort of parallels that could be drawn without considering a lot of variables. 
And I think those parallels should be set to bed because it's not a matter of there being a double standard. It's a very different playing field that we're discussing here. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, this massacre is quite important in terms of understanding the Israeli cookers because it occurred in the wake of all of the civil unrest and discourse after Yitzhak Rabin, the prime minister at the time, uh, signed the Oslo Accords in 1993. This essentially established the Palestinian Authority okay. and um, made promises that Israel would you know, do what it can to respect Isra- uh, Palestinian self-determination and movements towards a more concrete Palestinian state. So it was like a sort of like a two two um two state sort of move toward sort of thing. Yes. During sort of Clinton's time. Yes. Now the Oslo Accords and Rabin signing them drove the Cookers fucking bonkers. Yeah. The massacre in the Cave of the Patriarchs followed in 1994. And, and in linked. 1995, yeah. Rabin was assassinated by an ultra-Orthodox extremist. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, yeah. in 2005, I was 10 years old and I was influenced by ideologies adjacent to this. Uh, and it le- this is what led me to hand out the pamphlets on the street of far-right Israeli propaganda reading Jews do not expel Jews. Yeah. Okay. I Again, want to make the disclaimer, this is not representative of mainstream Israel, let alone diaspora Jewry or Australian Jewry. I am not representative of all Jews. This isn't a typical Australian Jewish story. But I think listeners should be concerned that this demographic in Israel is growing in population and in political power. And I think that telling this story is valuable for listeners to understand how cooked and pilled these fucking lunatics are. Yeah, yeah. So politics in Israel uh, threatening to go toward the right. The next election is going to be mega cooked because people are going to be in war mindset. And um, basically it paints a very bleak outlook. Uh, I'm not going to make another great replacement joke, but uh, the uh, the underlying thing is they are breeding, and um, it sounds like you know similar to what you were doing as a kid. They're sort of influencing others. You know, they are the cooker who speaks endlessly about the globalist at a dinner table, or for a lack of a better one, the vegan who who espouses their beliefs. Although I don't think that really anyway doesn't matter. So basically, when it comes down to it, this is going to be an endless state of war where the Palestinians just have no choice but to what be wiped off the face of the earth and what do it, you do it's it's quite a difficult question i mean israel is urging palestinians in gaza to leave at the moment just leave uh, and just don't just, come back well that's the issue is they know that if they leave they will not be allowed to come back right i mean it is al- almost impossible for a palestinian let alone a Palestinian refugee who has no citizenship for any country in the world. Yeah, because you're basically stateless because there's, yeah. Exactly. And that's the issue for most Palestinians living in Gaza and the West Bank. They have no (sighs) citizenship of any state. And frankly, no state wants them. Yeah, of course they bloody don't. And how are you going to get back into Gaza, mind you, via Israel, because Israel controls all the borders. Yeah. How are you going to get in there without a citizenship? And you can't stay anywhere because not only do they not want you, but maybe your second cousin is in Hamas. Yes. Yeah, Now, Israel's urging them to leave, uh, which might be, definitely is the safest thing if they're looking out for their own lives. It's like, leave or I'll kill you. Yeah. (laughs) It's not a great set of options. This is their childhood homes. Um, This this is land that they've lived in for generations. Yeah. Um, they're leaving an entire life behind for a very uncertain future. Will they ever get citizenship somewhere else? Who the fuck knows? Yeah, yeah. That's so fucked in the head. So beyond that, I mean, there is the very recent case. In particular, Israel warned uh, Gazans in the north of Gaza Strip to 
evacuate to the south, close to the Egyptian border. They yeah, named okay. particular routes and particular roads as safe routes. Mm-hmm. And then they bombed those routes. That's so fucked in the head. So I am hesitant to attribute, you know, malice directly to Israel. Yeah. And say that they were specifically targeting civilians. But okay. certainly civilians being in the way is not an issue. Yeah, okay. So what you think that may have been an operational reason for those airstrikes, but the fact that the optics were basically just not an issue for them because they didn't really care. I couldn't I couldn't really tell you for sure if Hamas yeah. was operating in the area. I mean, one of the issues that's so difficult with Gaza is that it is a very tiny, densely populated it area. Is, yeah. And yeah. I mean, Hamas is there. So yeah. I think it would be quite difficult to name a place that Hamas and also civilians are not in Gaza. Yeah. Okay. So for context, it's a 365 kilometer squared strip of land okay. with 2 million people living in it. Yep. And to compare it with Sydney, Sydney has 12,300 kilometers squares, squared land and 5.3 million people. Yeah. So Gaza is built on very shoddy infrastructure a lot of thin plaster, chip rock, chip wood, buildings put on top of each other because there's no other place to put them. They're just Chips, they can up. make it. Or else if it's not buildings put on top of each other, another one put on top of that, another one put on top of that on 67-year-old foundations that won't last, yep. it's shacks. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it looked like shit from the sky, I'm sure. It's fucking shit. Yeah. So, I mean, if you were bombing a place with 2 million people in 365 kilometers squared of land. I mean, you really need to ask yourself, how pinpoint can these targeted airstrikes and targeted missile strikes by Israel actually be? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's it. They're going to hit fucking everything. Yeah. And they don't seem to care that much when it comes to these things. So yeah. collateral damage is inevitable. Yeah. And yeah. I... Again, I do not know what is going on inside the minds of the soldiers who pull the trigger or who order the carrying out of a certain targeted airstrike. But what I can certainly say is that the inevitable civilian casualties is not an issue. And yeah. if they happen to land on a hospital or school, it's it's a risk that they are very willing to deal with. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty intense. It's pretty intense reality. And you never really know what you're, you know, unfortunately living near. Sorry, yeah. mate. You live near a uh, Hamas lunchroom. You have to die now. Yeah. Yeah, that's fucked up. I was listening to a, um, a QAnon thing today and uh, they were saying that it was 25 miles square as opposed to 25 miles long, which is very <laughs> funny. And then we're going on about how all these things were happening and that the media was this, the media was that. And I'm like, 25 miles? Hold on. That doesn't sound right. And then I looked it up. I'm like, you're a fucking idiot. Yeah. Why does anyone listen to these fucking morons coming up with these hot takes? They're just making up as they go. And it's like, you like, couldn't you have just written that fucking factoid down, mate? Anyway. It, it could very well be possible, Joel, that it's 365 kilometers squared on a round earth map. And yes. 25 kilometers squared on a flat earth map. You'd think that the Gaza Strip would be immune from that because the Jews are the reason why flat earth is a theory. Well, the the, the, the round earth is, is a theory, but we can get into that another time. But yeah, basically flat earth is a Nazis. That's the yeah. one that you should take away from that. <laughs> now, to continue with this line about why civilian casualties are so high, it's I do also want to provide some 
context for why the casualties are so high in Israel. Yep. Obviously, it's a very messy war. And Hamas are fucking terrorists. Fuck Hamas. Yeah. I don't like Hamas. What they did was fucking tragic. Music and festival, man. Uh, that, that's way too close to home for me. Yeah. And Palestinians, largely speaking, do not like Hamas. Um, okay. And anyone who applauds what they did should fucking go crawl into a corner. Yeah, yeah. But, again, Gazans are mostly struck by airstrikes and missiles. They have no air force, no anti-aircraft, no anti-missiles, no real military industry. So they're very limited in how they can fight back. They have no army. So, of course, paramilitaries are going to come up and these guys are going to be very decentralized. They're necessarily going to be the radical people among the population, mostly going to be young boys who you know want to beat their chest and show how tough they are. Yep. And these guys do not have real military-grade rockets or even very rarely have military-grade guns to fight back with. Yep. A lot of the time, it's some guy who did first-year engineering at the University of Gaza, and he makes homemade rockets in his garage. Yeah, okay, wow. Okay. And these things are necessarily inaccurate. They are absolutely arbitrary in who they land on. And it's the best that they got, but when you fire these things you cannot be sure about where it's going to land. Yeah, or whether it's going to take off, I imagine. Or whether it's going to take off. I mean, there are a lot of misfires. Yeah. And again, I am not in any sort of way supporting attacks on civilian people. Indiscriminate fire is basically, you know, the absolute acceptance of civilian casualties. Yeah. Yeah. Again, a lot of these guys, whether or not they intend to hit civilians, it's certainly not a risk that they are avoiding because they are shooting homemade rockets that are entirely arbitrary on who they land on. Yeah. It could very well be a part of their their plan. I mean, like, you know, they're not necessarily good people. (laughs) Again, what plan do they have other than that? I mean, if they are going to violently resist. Yeah. Or resist at all. Or resist at all. I mean, like, it doesn't seem like peaceful resistance has got the Palestinians very far recently. They've, you know, I've heard reports of their, as you were saying with the kneecaps, that the snipers would basically take out legs and limbs of protesters who were peacefully protesting. I mean, like, I can see, you know, I don't think that any amount of trauma can lead you to take the life of another person who ostensibly has nothing to do with it. I think that, you know, the eye for an eye, man, like, you know, world goes blind, you know, it's, it's basic, but yeah. Man, like, you know, you push someone hard enough, like, fuck, something bad's going to happen. Yeah. That's terrible, you know. Like, if, if my sister was at a, at a protest and someone took out her leg with a sniper rifle just for a bit of, you know, sort of geopolitical funsies, I'd find that pretty hard to let go. Yeah. But I don't know who the hell I'd be striking. I certainly would be getting the person who shot her, you know. Yeah. Would it be their second cousin? Probably not. It starts to make no sense, but nothing nothing about this does make any sense because violence strips a situation of sense. But I must say, the thing that I find difficult to reconcile with the idea of universally condemning the behaviour of uh, sort of Palestinian militants is the absolute lack of respect from not just Israel, but the, the greater West and the international community for nonviolent protest that just goes nowhere. 
you know, like at least say, look, thanks for not being assholes about this. We'll give you some, you know, we'll take out some settlers or we'll give you some land or we'll just do something in exchange for what I would say is basically obedience. But they didn't even get that. Yeah. I mean, around a decade ago, there was a very famous Israeli soldier. Well, he was only famous after he got captured. He was, you know, a very normal rank and file IDF soldier who was captured by Hamas. His name is Gilad Shalit, and he was held captive for several years. Mm-hmm. He became a national hero after he was captured. Okay. They ended up trading 1,000 Palestinian hostages wow. in, in his return. I mean, this is just a normal guy. Yeah. He's not some super soldier. He's not some top of the line, like, secret agent. Just a guy. Yeah. It's not like Jimmy Barnes or anything. No. Not John Wick. No. No. And, I mean, there was some very fierce debate within Israel about the morality of trading 1,000 hostages. Yeah. But ultimately, I think it shows that there is a very genuine, very mainstream feeling within Israel that any Israeli casualties are completely tragic and not worth even slightly risking, which is why they turn so much to, to airstrikes and military, you know, missile yeah. strikes. They don't want to get their hands dirty. They want to fight at a distance. They want to fight a war through means which, you know, the Palestinians are not able to fight back. And I mean, in a sense, like, how can you blame them? Who doesn't want to fight a war where the others can't fight back? Yeah. Um, but it creates a massive amount of civilian casualties. And I mean, it risks war crimes daily, which I believe have occurred. Yeah. Yeah, and it really makes it inevitable, in yeah. my opinion. I mean, you cannot hit something with a pinpoint strike in a place as densely populated as Gaza Strip. Yeah, and they have to basically say, we're doing this to take out Hamas, we're telling this to take out terrorists, because it has to have a military reasoning for it. Whereas, of course, when it comes to the guys firing rockets out of their garage, they don't necessarily have to do that. But, yeah. you know, when it comes down to it, if you look at the the situation the Palestinians are in, they are in a situation of extreme pressure, extreme subjugation. And, I mean, I think you were saying that you, like, under international law, it's actually human right to, to violently resist a military occupation. And it's easy to argue that Israel is a military occupation in those areas. So, I mean, you the UN would apparently agree on a sort of legal level with Palestinian resistance. But when it comes to any kind of vote ever, it's either, of course, vetoed by the UN or Israel or any other sort of power. So there's no there's no real meaning to it, you know, like there's no... But the laws are there that yes. say that violent resistance is justified in a situation that would parallel the Palestinians' plight. Yes. Whether but, you like it or not. You know, regardless of how particular presidents and politicians mumble their words on the matter formal U.S. policy is considering Palestinian territories as occupied territory. And the 1970 United Nations General Assembly Resolution 2625 explicitly endorses the right to resist subjection of peoples to alien subjugation, the domination, and exploitation. Okay. So, yes, violent resistance against an occupation is completely legitimate. Yeah. It's incredibly unfortunate that, I mean, you have one of the most modern armies in the world, bombing the Gazan population. Quote from Benny Gantz, who's now uh, a member of the wartime cabinet, former opposition leader within Israel, um, general for many, many years, very high-ranking general. 
he said during one of the recent wars, we will bomb Gaza into the Stone Ages. That's yeah. a direct quote. That's not and, healthy. And I mean, it's really quite a good framework to, to look at this. I mean, you have one of the most modern armies in the world with a top-of-the-line aircraft, top-of-the-line missiles, striking a largely civilian, densely populated people who yep. have no anti-aircraft, no anti-missiles, no air force, no military industry, and very limited resources altogether. So in a sense, again, you need to ask yourself, how can they fight back with anything other than homemade rockets, yeah. which again, really terrible, not going to hit the target you want it to, to hit. No, no. But I mean, human nature, right? Every action has a reaction. And the Gazans are not going to sit on their asses and just accept that, you know, they are being subjugated to this occupation. They're going to fight back and it's going to get ugly. It's going to get nasty. Civilians will be hurt. And unfortunately, it's just the conditions of the war that, that are kind of fundamentally built into the, the, the methods that are used to fight it. Yeah. Yeah. It is. It's bloody awful. I mean, you know, it's difficult to have the right to resist when there's nothing to resist against because it's just missiles coming from the sky. It's a, a horrific situation. And, you know, and like when it comes down to it, you've got situations like even just kids just throwing rocks at IDF soldiers. Yeah. I mean, so, they get shot. That's right. Now, Israel has criminalized the use of stones in any sort of way. I mean, throwing stones in Palestinian territories, Gaza or West Bank is a crime under military law, which governs the area. Okay. Now, mind you, Israel denies that it has a military occupation, but this military law is enforced upon the civilian population of the West Bank under uh, what is called the Coordinator of Government Activities in the Territories. Okay. Uh, okay, that's the ministry. And they and the IDF govern every little bit of that area. And I think that the listeners should ask themselves, what is a legitimate form of resistance that the Palestinians are entitled to to deploy? I mean, obviously, terrorism is not good. No one supports terrorism. No. And um, even just indiscriminate rocket fire. We understand all the blah, blahs. And we've just gone through that. But neither of us are sitting here saying it's a good thing to be just randomly shelling populations and seeing what happens. Obviously, yes. it's shit. But, okay, violent resistance to a military occupation, is that legitimate? Well, no. I mean, Israel brands whoever engages with this in, they brand them as, as terrorists. So yeah. that's a and, no-no. And, and the West agrees with it. Yeah. yeah always and do. on top of that, I mean, I, I would really challenge this because terrorism is definitionally limited to strikes on civilian targets and it's designed to instill fear upon a civilian population. I just do not see how attacks on a military force, you know, occupation or not, legitimate attack or not, I don't know how that could be called terrorism. Yeah, and like, you know, I, can't, I would imagine that Israelis would, you know, sleep with some level of concern, but they are protected by an iron dome. So Now, on top of that, there is the banning of throwing stones. Even against stationary or non-sentient targets in a playground in the West Bank, make no mistake, Palestinian children can be arrested for doing this because there is an implication of terrorist activities. Wow, okay. Um, so even the implication of some sort of violent resistance against the, the, the Palestinian military occupation is, is also 
criminally outlawed. So this is not considered by Israel to be a legitimate form of resistance. Uh, now you need to ask yourself, well, what's left? Okay, maybe sanctions by bodies like the UN and condemnation in the media, but Never these are also happen. very frequently labeled by uh, Israel as anti-Semitic because it singles Israel out among all the other nations that are also committing war crimes. Yep. Never mind the Soviet Union tactic of whataboutism. They are very, very ready, Israel that is, to say, well, look at North Korea. Why are you talking about us, UN, you know? Yeah. So, you know, again, sanctions and condemnation by the media, they are not considered by Israel to be a legitimate form of peaceful resistance. And they're also going to get vetoed anyway. The yeah. US will never let it happen. Doesn't Israel have a veto vote at the UN? I don't know. No. No, okay. So but the US will do it anyway. US will do it. Yeah. And funnily enough, Australia is also routinely one of the very few countries that, you know, is the absolute last to vote against Israel at the UN on any matters. I mean, of course, sometimes there are hotly debated motions and other times there's motions in the UN which are passed like, you know, every single country to like 10 or to five. And no doubt one of those countries is America, Australia, and then like some randoms like, yeah. and like, and like Bhutan and countries yeah. you would never, never, ever expect to be on this list. That are just, yeah. just like, what the fuck are you doing here? Yeah. Now, then again, what's left as a legitimate form of resistance? Well, it's a crime to wave the Palestinian flag inside Israel. So acts of Palestinian national pride are criminalized. Yep. They're not allowed to express their national identity. So apparently this is not a form of legitimate resistance. Then there's the calls for boycott, divestment, and sanctions, which is commonly abbreviated as BDS. Yep. It's a grassroots movement. This isn't something that is being proposed by states or by the UN. It's a grassroots civilian movement. Yeah, it is, yeah. Where, you know, you go to the supermarket and you check where product is made and you decide, I'm not going to buy that. Yeah, but I have a soda stream, but I was told that I shouldn't because they're made in Israel. That's all right. It, it really is great at bringing the adrenochrome out of the Palestinian babies, isn't it, Joel? <laughs> That's very good. Yeah, look, uh, when it comes to the Soto Stream, well, it's actually an interesting one insofar as the BDS, from what I heard, they had the uh, Soto Stream in sort of like, you know, places where Palestinians or at least, you know, sort of uh, Israeli Palestinians were being paid quite well. And then because of BDS, they had to move them or something. I don't know. But but either way, like I have heard of it. And the only thing that I can really think of, because I don't routinely buy, you know, sort of high-end military hardware, is, is yeah. Listen, BDS is a incredibly difficult standard to hold oneself to because globalization means that pretty much every major industrial nation around the world has its fingers in some of the pies that you're buying into it's very hard to check exactly where every product is made it's that kind of division of labor yeah yeah but at the end of the day it's a decision that is made product by product person by person whenever they go to the supermarket or whenever they shop on amazon endorsing this is criminalized in israel yeah okay yeah fair okay, enough okay so yeah. that's not a legitimate yeah. form of resistance i mean even in in florida a number of other southern states in the USA, any endorsements of BDS are heavily censored by the Israeli lobby and by the governments, state governments there. For example, a teacher in Florida, before they become employed at a school, they need to sign waivers that state that they will never endorse BDS. Yeah, Fuck I, Florida. Man, like when you told me that, I looked it up. It's not even just Florida, man. It's crazy. So, um, Oh, man. Tennessee. Like it's 
it's heaps. It's even some northern states, like it's even some coastals, like California's got some as well. There's heaps of stuff when it comes to government procurement. So basically, the Israel lobbies got these states that require so these companies they deal with these like the individual states they have to sign agreements that they will not boycott Israel. And generally speaking, regardless of the agreement, if there's a history of BDS engagement or any kind of boycott, publicly speaking they will not be able to procure from that company legally because of like established legislation. It's pretty yeah. crazy. It's it's a multitude of states. It's not just a few. It's not just a handful. It's a shitload of them. I checked out the Wikipedia page. Woof. What in the flying fuck does a teacher in Tennessee to do with all of this? Why do they need to sign this waiver? Like what's it got it's, to do with the education of children? I don't know. Well, it's basically because the Israel lobby is strong and the US is full of spineless politicians. Yeah. <laughs> basically. So, again, apparently this is not a legitimate form of resistance or peaceful yeah. resistance. Yeah. So, like, what do you do? Ultimately, again, we got to come back to the question, what is legitimate resistance? What do we do? And obviously, terrorism is out of the question. Killing civilians is always out of the question. Yep. When you combine all of these factors... You need to ask yourself again, imagine if you were a Palestinian living in Gaza, would creating a rocket in your own garage be entirely inconceivable to you? Yeah, and that is the, the, the unfortunate situation that I don't think a lot of people are putting themselves into when they weigh in on this and they sort of, you know, universally condemn one side and sort of valorize the other. Yeah, and they it's basically, a fucking yeah. pressure cooker. Well, yeah, and like you know, and it's 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 crazy shit. Like you know, to to understand all the nuance of this, and this is what I think is good in this episode. That we're sort of fleshing out some of the on ground realities, some of the sort of historical anomalies that lead to this sort of like you know this convergence of factors, and and you know, I'm making sure that it's understood that there is you never take another person's life like they do sort of indiscriminately. But but the Israelis have done a very good job of making sure that not only can Palestinians not resist, but school teachers in Florida can't resist them. So, I mean, that's pretty crazy. But, I mean, yeah. look, you know, one of the things that even though this is something that's not really talked about, I mean, like it's not a very sexy topic, you know, sort of talking about teachers signing away their right to mention BDS in their classrooms. It does lean into the idea that, you know, the Jews are pulling the strings, right? You know, we, we said the Israel lobby a couple of times and that you got to be careful you don't stretch into the sort of dog whistle territory on that one because obviously left and right will blame the Jewish boogeyman for just about fucking anything. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I really think of the way that conspiracists and racists think about Jews as, like, you know, we're the final boss at the end of the video game. Yeah. They need to yeah, be okay. to, like, win the level. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, not all racists are necessarily racist against all of the other races. Yeah, and yeah. not all conspiracy theorists, except for Monica Smith. Shout yeah, out to her, yeah. good friend of the program. Yeah, not all yeah. conspiracy theorists believe in every conspiracy theory. Yeah, yeah, I totally but, agree. Like that's what we have cookers for. Like you know, the idea of a cooker is basically someone who prescribes to everything, and every time something new comes out, they go, "Oh yeah, yeah, I believe that." And you're like, "Have you even thought about this, bro?" Like, no, you haven't. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. Throughout all of this chaos, there is one thing you can bank on. When you meet a racist 
when you meet a conspiracy theorist, mm-hmm. most of the time they believe that Jews and Israel are, you know, this core vanguard is at the hub of the globalist and elites running the world. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, they might not say it outright, they might not be explicit, but you can absolutely bank on them. Dog Eventually getting about there it. at least. Eventually yeah. they get there. Yeah. And I think best case scenario is that they at least parrot the dog whistles that are created by and coined by very explicit anti-Semites, mm-hmm. not knowing that they're dog whistles. Yeah. But whenever you hear these things like globalists and bankers, mind you, even if these guys do not get to the Jews or do not know that they're talking about Jews, that is the most charitable way to interpret it. Oh, totally. And they're still pushing the concept to other people who will start, you know, as they say, asking the Jewish question, they will do so because they were prompted by this bullshit. Yeah. Globalists and bankers, easy dog whistle for the Jews. George easy. Soros and yep. the Rothschild, another dog whistle. Mm-hmm. When they talk about they, there's a reason why it's slowly grown into this internet meme of putting it in triple parentheses, meaning the Jews. Mm-hmm. Whenever you hear a conspiracy theorist use the word they to refer to globalists, again, maybe they know it, it's the most, or maybe they don't, which is the most charitable, charitable. way. Yeah. But if they don't, at the very least, they are parodying the dog whistles of known anti-Semites. Mm-hmm. Um, Absolutely. And now, this is why I really want to urge all listeners to proceed with caution when they're listening, because when I am telling you about my own upbringing, I am not representative of all Jews or of all Israelis. Um, one person and a person who's sharing my story, but this is the last person I want to end up like is Ayan Hirsi Ali, who began with some very legitimate concerns about radical Islam yep. and slowly became more and more fucking cooked. Oh yeah, totally. To the point where she's like outright endorsed far right fascist Gert Wattlers in the Dutch Oh, really? And, well, she went that far. And, and she's cooked on vaccines now as well. Yeah, I imagine so. Darling of the ultra-right. Yeah. And I mean, she began as a critic of Islam who grew up within radical Islam. Yeah. And she has some very valid, I mean, terrifying experiences that are worth sharing. Totally. And certain factions of the left chewed up and spat her out, sometimes for good reasons, which I won't get into. It's a very long discussion to have. Yeah. But slowly, as a result of being chewed up and spat out, she became more and more cooked and found more and more of a home among the far right and among yep. friends who, frankly, were very fucking racist against her being an African, very racist against Muslims. Well, and held her yep. on very low self low esteem. But regardless, that was the bed that she made for herself. So those were the friends that she found. So this is absolutely the last person that I want to emulate as a Jewish person. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, we have a few of those people in our homegrown freedom movement who pander to far-right extremists and, you know, even as far as Nazis, who the Nazis and most of the far-right extremists who aren't just, you know, classic conspiracy cookers would not piss on them if they were on fire due to their skin colour or their background, but they still pander to them because that's their base. Yeah. Because the message that gets them clicks is the message that these people are pushing and they're all having a fun little time together and making table scraps of money. But for some reason, the attention is enough to just make them completely forget the adversary relationship at the very core. You know, cats making friends with dogs, but eventually the dog turns on the cat and the cat's like, what the fuck, man? It's like, well, dude, 
I'm three times your size and I'm hungry. Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah. It, it is, again, really scary because these anti-Semites do exist within the Palestine movement. Yeah. I would say that they are exaggerated by yes. certain wings of the media and minimized by other wings. Yep, absolutely, for sure. Um, personally, I was absolutely disgusted by the protests in Sydney recently where chants of gas the Jews and fuck the Jews were made and a contingent of the protesters took over the entire mob. Yep. I'm pretty happy to see that the organizers of the protest condemned those chants, but I think it's really important that they make a considerably stronger effort in the future to recognize that it only takes one rotten apple to spoil the whole bunch. Yeah, the, the media response to that was one of those things where it's like they were looking for something to condemn these protests as being some kind of radical extremist thing and they got it. But one of the organisers who, of course, is a good friend of ours, said on Twitter that he went to the police and they just refused to do anything. And he's like, well, can you get rid of these assholes? Like, what are you going to do? Are you going to punch them? I mean, let's face it, if they're from the Canberra or, you know, Fairfield, they're probably big boys that you mm. do not want to have a boxing match with. And yeah. the organiser in question who we are mates with is what they call on the scene a twink. Beautiful man. <laughs> but not someone who's going to be walking up there and saying, let's fight. That being said, I reckon he probably would have got in their faces pretty hard. But, but you know, when it comes down to the coercive power, there it was standing there and basically just watching them saying, oh, no, we've got to make sure you don't cause any trouble. There's trouble being caused. No, no, not that trouble. That's that's fine. No, we're looking for other troubles. Like, mm. no, that's trouble. Fuck. Anyway. Yeah. Very frustrating. Uh, I mean, I'm very grateful to see that the protests more recently than that one have been entirely peaceful and have not encountered angry anti-Semitic mobs like that. Yeah. Much to the dismay of click-seeking fucking media outlets. Yeah. Come They've on, guys. Do settling, you know. However, I mean, anyone who organizes a pro-Palestinian protest needs to anticipate that they will be held to a very high standard on this yeah. issue by their critics. It's Which inevitable. But yeah, it um, is inevitable, yeah. Their critics will nitpick and they will find one rotten apple and they will paint the entire protest with that single brush. Totally. Christa Broom will be there making sure that everyone says, I condemn Hamas, but on every single fucking statement they make, oh, how are you doing? Do you condemn Hamas? Yeah. Do you, could, could you condemn Hamas? Y yeah. What's your fucking point, mate? Like, it's silly. Yeah. Anyway. And obviously, any Palestinian or advocate for Palestine has a whole fucking lot on their plate right now. Totally. Um, it's a nightmare. And still, I, I would urge them to not lose sight of holding themselves to a high standard on this issue of taking out the anti-Semitic trash because their critics certainly will. And it yeah. will be used to delegitimize the movement when the critics get a hold of it. Yep. So if it's it's it only takes one. So pro-Palestinian sentiment has to basically do backflips over itself to make sure it condemns Hamas and they're making sure they're both sides in it as much as humanly possible. And we're doing a similar thing as well. At the end of the day, we have a whole bunch of factions that make up this sort of bizarre information cultural war around this that are pretty cooked, some of them more cooked than others. So let's divide some pro and anti sentiment into subcategories. Let's conveniently letterbox some, some beliefs. Okay. 
Well, obviously, you know, you get the traditional Palestinian camp, which supports Palestine, the traditional Jewish camp, which supports Israel. Yeah, um, yeah. People who believe in a free and a fair Palestine is fine, yeah. There are some really cooked factions that attach themselves to this issue. Yeah. Um, and they make up a more significant portion of the discourse than you would realize. Yeah. So, for example, with the American-Israel Political Action Conference, APAC, mm-hmm. it's the largest political action group in the USA. Mm-hmm. Most of their funding comes from evangelical Christians, not from Israelis, not from Jews. Um, now, a lot of these guys, the evangelical and messianic Christians, will support Israel because they believe that Jews are a necessary evil in the fight against the axis of you know, greater evil, which is Islam, okay. China, North Korea. Uh, they also anticipate an attempt to hasten the coming of the Armageddon, which, according to biblical ideas, will happen in the Israeli town of Megiddo, which is, of course, etymologically the source of Armageddon. Oh, wow, okay. And obviously, a war that will be nuclear, a war to end all wars, not Great. exactly in Israel's interest. No, no. Not in my interest either. I'd rather you didn't, but I guess I don't have... $100 million to give to political parties to make that happen. So that's a yeah. shame. Yeah. Now, then there is the other example of, you know, Nazis who simply hate Israel because, well, this one should be obvious. There's Jews there. Full of Jews. Yeah, Full of no Jews. good. Nazis don't like Jews. That's a, that's a basic. Straightforward. But then yeah. it can be more complicated than that. So Richard Spencer, the American Nazi, is most famous for being punched in the face live on air. <laughs> Great video. Great video. Great video. Surprise, staunchly pro-Israel. He describes himself as a Christian Zionist. Okay, that's weird. So, hates Jews, loves Israel. Yeah. I love I love your country, just don't like what's in it. He says that he wishes that white people in America would have an ethnostate just like Israel does. Yeah, okay, yeah. Almost suddenly down the line, his plan is to expel Jews to Israel, which he believes ah. has a right to exist, right? Yeah, but also really convenient. Yeah, okay. You know, uh, I tell you what, you would better have a fucking contingency plan for your screenwriting guild because your movies are about to suck. They're not going to be funny anymore. I'm sorry. You think you think Seth Rogen's... Uh, yeah, he's, he's holding your whole shit together. Yeah, I mean, yeah. further proof that they run the Hollywood, right? Yeah, when was the last time you watched a funny movie that wasn't produced by Judd Apatow? I mean, come on. You're yeah. fucking kidding yourselves, guys. And so then... Again, a lot of these factions, it just gets increasingly bizarre. So Germany has a pretty significant contingent of Antifa for Israel. That's okay. the thing they organize under. Unusual. But then when you consider that like the far right there are literal Nazis who committed the Holocaust in Germany. <laughs> I guess the Antifa for there, Israel kind of, kind kind of makes up. sense, right? Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Lebanese and Iranian uh, far left, on the other hand. They have a pretty significant contingent which supports Israel because they oppose the government there, which is quite right-wing, and the status quo there is to oppose Israel. Yeah, okay. Now, you also get the way that I grew up. So, of course, as I said in the intro, I grew up as an ultra-Orthodox Jew. I was staunchly pro-Israel, but I was anti-Zionist. The way this worked is that we believe that God had a plan which was to be carried out to a T um, and that this plan did not involve the creation of Israel. We were placed under exile by God 
and this exile has not been lifted, will not be lifted until the Messiah comes. So we were anti-Zionist in the sense that we were against the fundamental ideology and theory of creating the state of Israel. Uh, this involved refusing to sing the national anthem, and regardless, now that Israel had been established, we were, you know, very supportive of any of their contemporary policies. We did not believe in giving up an inch of land. And we firmly believe that now that it exists, God wants us to back it and its policies every step of the way. Backflip. But now, again, it still gets more cooked. There are anti-Zionist, anti-Israel, ultra-Orthodox Jews, like the Satma Hasidim, Gera Hasidim, there's the Turekata. And these guys at times even dabble in Holocaust denial. Wow. Like, they're pretty fucking culty. They're that's the yeah, most that's real cooked. They're the most extreme and the most religious of all the Jews. Interesting. They're almost always anti-vax. Yep. Yeah. And you know their idea is, I guess, like the way that I grew up, but more extreme. It's just completely uncompromising in the sense that two thousand years ago, God ordained the Jews to be in exile, and so any creation of a Jewish state is strictly forbidden, and it's just an uncompromising fact for them. Okay, that's very weird. And you will see rabbis from, particularly in the Turakata sect, being paraded around and given speaking roles at protests for Palestine. I really want to urge listeners to not embrace these guys because, again, they're they dabble in Holocaust denial, yeah. anti-vax, pretty yeah. fucking cooked guys. They're shit. And they also believe that you know when the third temple comes and when Messiah comes, that then the Jews can carry out ethnic cleansing. Oh, good. Yeah. Ethnic cleansing. And who's getting cleansed? Oh, anyone who's not Jewish, they're getting cleansed oh, from Israel. So, that's me. What? No, I'm not used to being oppressed. This is bullshit. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, that's not cool. These guys are not good know. guys. No, they're not good guys at all. Yeah, that's actually a really good point to not, you know, not to back them incidentally. You know, like, I've got you on the show here. You're a Jewish voice to speak to this because you come from a place that understands a sort of wider global scale, but I'd never thought for a second that you were just like a sort of cooked guy like that. If you were, yeah, we'd be pulling this one. Yeah. <laughs> it would not be happening. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is a real issue in terms of the conflicts because it's become so global in terms of, you know, who it involves in this discourse and Israel and the Jews some reason or another, have just always captured the uh, international community's imagination and focus. So, Possibly through extremely high-end lobbying, but yeah. Yes, that is a very legitimate answer. And another very legitimate answer, there's no reason why it can't be both, is good old anti-Semitism. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you, for example, get the Manosphere anti-vaxxer types like Andrew Tate, oh, yeah. uh, who believe that triple parentheses, they... Yep. are the ones who destroyed masculinity by controlling and disseminating porn. Yep. And, of course, microchipping us lowers our testosterone, apparently. Yep. Israel, of course, was one of the most hardcore pro-vaccine countries throughout COVID. Yep. Also, like, you know, the chairman of, or the CEO or whatever of Pfizer, Albert yeah. Buhler, I think it was, or whatever, Jewish fella. They yeah. love that. They like bringing that up a lot. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, as well as Joe Biden's spokesperson for health. What's her name? Rachel Levine. Ah, uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah, that's a telltale sign right there. Now, again, you also get cookers in India, far-right Hindu nationalists love Israel simply because they also hate Islam. 
Uh, okay. Because yeah. their conflict with Pakistan is also born from English-British occupation. Yeah. Um, and they see it as, you know, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. Yeah. Some of the most cooked and bizarre and just out of left field Israel advocacy that you see on the internet and on Twitter actually comes from far-right Hindu nationalists. Yeah, that's a very strange allegiance. But that is fascinating. So another common thing that's brought up to various degrees of, you know, sort of uh, opposition and consensus agreement is the idea that Israel is an apartheid state, which is obviously a loaded term considering the experience in South Africa. But it's, it's a loaded term, but it seems to have some basis here. I think it's interesting to flesh out the reasons why that term could be used and maybe some of the more sort of finer points of what that means on a practical level because it's something you can really throw around that just sounds like, you know, blah, blah, racism. Oh, you're racism. It's an apartheid state. I mean, fuck, people used it to describe the voice. So it's a word that feels like it's lost a certain level of meaning. And when it's being used to describe this conflict, I think people just tend to gloss over it. But we've discussed a few things of the practical nature of Israel implementing considered policies to maintain a state that you could call, and I'm pretty sure I'm pronouncing it wrong, but an apartheid state. So hmm. how are they treated differently? And, and like, you know, what what does that mean for Israel's, Israelis and Palestinians living side by side in sort of what you could call shared territories? And, you know, and how are they treated differently? Yeah. Well, listen, you probably are sounding it right. Yeah, listen, Joel, you probably are saying it wrong. I guess most of us are. But then again, it is a word that comes from Afrikaner, Dutch and German origin. So you don't want to sound too German when you say these <laughs> words. No, you don't. No. But it is important to look at the definition of the word, which is a policy or system of segregation or discrimination on the grounds of race. Now, Israel and Palestine is very complicated legal situation as well and there's many different tiers of different classes of citizens within the Palestinian population. Now as I've said there is the government ministry called the coordinator of government activities in the territories which governs every single inch of what happens in the West Bank and of course Israel is at the extent of its power where it can completely limit everything coming in and out of Gaza whether it's electricity, water, foreign aid, military resources, concrete, any sort of resources, food. I don't believe that this would be possible in a land which isn't a military occupation. Suddenly, I mean, they're being kept in a very, very tight spot, 365 kilometers squared. However, I think Gaza is much less of a textbook example of apartheid. It's suddenly worse than the West Bank but it is more difficult to dissect within that framework. So let's look at within Israel's borders and then at uh, the West Bank. Within Israel's borders, the Israeli legal center called Adala has singled out 65 or more laws. We're still counting. They're passing more and more. And these laws explicitly discriminate between Israeli Jewish citizens and Israeli Palestinian citizens. On top of that, there are many more laws and social conditions which explicitly provide advantages and privileges within a legal framework to those who serve in the army or are granted certain exemptions from being in the army. 
one exemption might include that you are very religiously observant and you don't want to serve, um, of course, observant as a Jew. However, Palestinians born inside of Israel are also exempt from the army, but they are not entitled to those advantages and privileges. So Palestinian citizens of Israel have better rights than all of the other Palestinians. Yep. There are different tiers of rights given to the Palestinians. So, for example, if a Palestinian citizen emigrates to Australia and gives birth to a baby in Sydney, their baby is not de facto a citizen of Israel, yep. even if their parents are citizens of Israel. In fact, they will likely struggle to even get a temporary visa or visiting visa. And yeah, they'll face wild. interrogation of the Israeli customs if they visit for a holiday. Yep. Because there is profiling at those airports. Oh, yeah, of course. Now, for me, on the other hand, I was an Israeli citizen from the moment I was born. Yep. Even though I was born in Sydney, I've always lived in Sydney. And I did not have to visit Israel to get that citizenship. My parents were citizens, so I wasn't de facto. It's just right of return. Yes. That's the law. Now, in the West Bank, things are considerably worse. So... Israeli Jewish settlers are governed by Israeli domestic law. They're tried in Israeli civil or criminal courts. And the law is enforced by Israeli police. Sounds normal, right? Yeah. It's the way any Western or normal state is ran. However, yeah. Palestinians in the West Bank are governed by Israeli military law. If they live next door to an Israeli settler. And yeah, they're tried okay. in military tribunal courts with 99% plus conviction rates. Oh, wow. Fact. So different procedures, different levels of transparency, I imagine. There'd be all sorts of stuff. Yes. And yeah, this law cool. is enforced primarily by IDF soldiers and also Israeli police. Yeah, okay. Now, obviously, there is a much, much larger number of Israeli soldiers than Israeli police in the West Bank. And it creates two entirely different systems of law governing people who are hypothetically living next door to each other as yep. neighbors, even if they partake in the exact same crime together. Yeah, okay. Yeah, it's just a completely different system. Yeah. So one example, if a West Bank Palestinian is caught driving on a road in the West Bank that is limited explicitly for Israeli drivers only, they'll be arrested by the army and charged in a military court. And yes, you heard that right. Most of the roads in the West Bank are either for Palestinians only or they're for Jews only. Yeah, well. These laws systematically keep people, and I use this word very deliberately, apart based on their race. That's crazy. Now, That's such a strange thing to enforce as well. Yeah. Like, I'm guessing you have different like car registrations and things or... Yeah, there's, there's number plates that yeah. indicate where the car's from. Yeah. Now, if an IDF soldier spots a Israeli Jew driving through the West Bank along a Palestinian-only road, the IDF soldier cannot arrest them. Only a policeman can arrest them. Yeah, okay. Because military law does not apply to Israeli citizens in the West Bank. Israeli yep. domestic law applies. Yeah, and there's more IDF soldiers than cops. Yes. Yeah. So... If the IDF soldier, let's say, tried to arrest the Israeli, that soldier would be sent to military prison or tribunal for overstepping their judicial boundaries. It's not something they're allowed to do. Now, let's move on to another example. Let's say a Palestinian and an Israeli Jew are peacefully sharing and smoking a joint together in the West Bank. Lovely. Yep. That brings together peace, doesn't it? Yay. 
The IDF, of course, is much more likely to be immediately on the scene than Israeli police. They have a yep. much larger presence. So the Palestinian, if he's spotted by an IDF soldier, would be immediately arrested. Possession of weed is a crime under Israeli military law. The Palestinian, however, sorry, the Palestinian will be immediately taken to an Israeli military base and kept in a military prison where they face a military tribunal, again, with 99% plus conviction rates. Yep. Palestinians regularly wait weeks and months, sometimes even occasionally for years, for charges to be laid, yeah. let alone to be heard in court. Now, the Israeli Jewish citizen, on the other hand, is not committing a crime under the, as we've all heard, the very liberal Israeli domestic law. Yeah. They might get a small caution or a fine if police decide to show up and catch him for possession of weed. It's likely that he would walk away without any issues. Yeah. Because, of course, Israel is a liberal, democratic Western state. Yep. Weed is a not very harmful drug. That's, yeah. Another example. Let's say an Israeli Jew in the West Bank punches a Palestinian in the face without any provocation. Okay. And the Palestinian defends themselves and punches back, right? Let's imagine a very clear case of self-defense. Yep. An IDF soldier, if they spot this, must immediately arrest the Palestinian for attacking an Israeli citizen. Yep. It's a military issue. Yep. The soldier, on the other hand, is strictly forbidden from laying a hand on the Israeli Jew because it is not in the military's jurisdiction to enforce Israeli law upon its own citizens. They need to wait until a policeman arrives, which could be a fucking long time. Yeah. Yeah, okay. If there's the discretion, discretionary will for, to actually organize the police and all that sort of, of stuff course. anyway. And, you know, let's be realistic here. The policeman is also likely racist and has his own views on the matter and it's a possibility that yeah will show up in a situation which is largely inflamed by the idf presence which is very partial and only arresting the palestinian so it creates a reality where the the policeman will show up on the scene and see a very enraged palestinian atmosphere yes and they will try and control that of course yeah another yeah. example let's say an israeli jewish settler family lives literally next door to a Palestinian family in the West Bank. This Palestinian family will still have no voting rights whatsoever. They will not be citizens. They cannot participate in the Israeli elections. And they are not legally considered by Israel to be living within Israel. Meanwhile, their entire existence is governed by Israeli military law and determined yep. by the ministry called the Coordinator of Government Activities in the Territories. And the IDF can raid the Palestinian family home whenever they want and without a warrant. If the Israeli family next door has children, their children will be considered born in Israel and will be naturalized citizens. Yeah. They can participate in Israeli democracy. They have voting yeah, rights. Yeah, now, okay. to me, this is pretty unambiguously apartheid. Checks out. Pro-Israel advocates will point to the fact that Palestinians who are citizens of Israel, who are born within Israel's borders, Judges, doctors, lawyers, members of parliament, and this is a bogus argument. I mean, a lot of people are surprised to hear that actually the exact same could be said for apartheid South Africa. They had African judges, lawyers, doctors, and members of parliament. It was still yep. apartheid. Yeah, okay. That's interesting. 
In the great words of Trent Reznor, we have a shitload more to go. So we're going to cut it here and we are going to continue on in part two because fuck, man, i got to edit all this. So let's pause, reflect, have a think about what we've gone through, which is basically the way in which the Israelis and the Palestinians interact on a legal and social level. And think of these people as human beings in a society which has its challenges and going forward, try and have a little extra layer of empathy and an understanding of where these people are coming from and how things work. So thank you, Yaakov, for coming on and telling us all of that because that was fascinating stuff that I just don't tend to get anywhere else and I really appreciate your unique insights. Yeah, uh, I'm really happy to give them and uh, it's nice to have someone actually uh, participate in a conversation be this interested in the conflict. Yeah, well, it's a big thing at the moment, but I think that it's being, being whitewashed by a lot of bullshit. So hopefully this gives people a bit of clarity and um, and I'm sure there's some Middle East experts out there amongst us who are, you know, looking at this and thinking, oh, I already knew that. Well, well done. That's very good. But for the most part, I didn't know any of that shit. So I'm pretty happy you came on. All right. Until part two. Thanks, listeners. I don't think I ever want to talk to any of those people. Fuck me! <laughs>